Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. It's almost Oscars time, so let's talk about actors. In a bit, we'll hear from Isaac Butler and his book about method acting, which when you hear the phrase, you might picture a certain type of actor, maybe kind of an annoying one. And as you'll hear in the interview, that's not totally off base, but it's not the whole picture of the method either. But first, Sarah Polly was a child actor, and it was tough. The job somehow led to her being eight years old on set in a rowboat with explosions going off all around her. You know, not the best environment for a young kid growing up. She's got a new essay collection called Run Towards the Danger, and she told NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer about confronting the memories of that and some other big hardships in her life head on. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, a people's history tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Writer, director, and actress Sarah Pauly began acting at the age of four. In less than a decade, she was starring in a popular Canadian TV series, and she was a lead character in the movie The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Her life seemed idyllic. Polly had fame, money, and success all before turning 20. But she was also dealing with the death of her mother, her father's negligence, and serious scoliosis, all of which she recounts in her new book, Run Towards the Danger. The title comes from advice she was given by a doctor after a debilitating concussion. The thing that he told me in our first meeting was, if you remember nothing else from this meeting, remember this, run towards the danger. Instead of the protocols we've become so used to of, you know, if you have a concussion or a brain injury, go lie in a dark room, avoid the things that bother you, actually go towards the things you've been avoiding. Polly applied that health advice to understanding her personal life and to her writing. I started to treat this idea of running towards the danger as a sort of call to move towards anything that was causing me discomfort that I'd been avoiding. And what that turned into was this book where I kind of move towards and try to describe and immerse myself in some of the hardest experiences I've had and try to unpack them. Polly writes about her frightening experiences as a child actor, her high-risk pregnancy, her daughter's stay in the NICU, and her concussion. But even though it reads like a long list of traumas, Polly says she feels lucky. It's always a strange moment for me when someone's read the book and sort of says to me, you know, you've had such a difficult life. And I think it's not actually how I feel. I feel like I've actually had sort of a charmed life and a lucky life. And yeah, a lot of stuff has happened and I'm not trying to minimize that. But I've also ended up with a job I really love and with a family I really love and kind of doing okay. Your stories about your experiences as a child actor were fascinating to read and often appalling to read because you described how unsafe you felt. There's a part in the book where you describe a scene you had to film that was so harrowing. You basically had to run through an obstacle course of danger that an ambulance was waiting at the end just in case. And you had a lot of commentary later on children in the film industry and whether it treated them as well as they should. Do you still question that? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that it's sort of strange to not ask the hardest question, which is, you know, should kids be in professional environments at all? I mean, we've sort of made a decision as a society that kids shouldn't work, but we make an exception for an industry that's kind of known for (laughs) its sort of reckless practices. It's a really strange thing that we've just all sort of silently come to terms with. Certainly, I mean, I've talked to a lot of child actors over the years, very few report that it's been a positive experience. So I think we have to kind of look at it as a risk. And if it's a risk that we've decided to take with a child, putting them in a professional environment with a bunch of adults who are not trained to educate or nurture children, I think we have to sort of make that the priority that this will not be a devastating or or even difficult experience for them. I'm sure there are some listeners wondering what kind of experiences you went through as a child actor. I'm, I'm thinking of one in the book involving a horse. Maybe that's a good one for you to give as an example. Yeah, I mean, on the film The Adventures of Baron Munchausen that I was in when I was eight years old, there were scenes involving explosives that went off quite close to me. The incident that you're referring to where, you know, me and Eric Idle and Jack Purvis were in a small rowboat in a water tank and explosives were going off in the water. There was also a horse in the boat with us who started backing up towards us and the rider had to take it overboard. And that created a situation that was really terrifying for everybody because explosives were still going off. And uh, yeah, that's one of one of the more extreme examples of, of things that happened. And I was taken to hospital after that event and, and couldn't hear properly for at least a few days after that. Years later, you wrote to the director to describe to him how you had felt, how unsafe you had felt. And from the book, we get the impression that you felt unsatisfied by the response you got from the director. You know, here's what I'll say I was satisfied. I, You know, it was Terry Gilliam, and he did respond to my email right away. And he did apologize for certain things, like the incident that happened in the boat. He also gave me permission to publish that email exchange in a newspaper, which I think is an unusual thing to agree to when you might not look something might not be painting you in such a flattering light. Like a lot of the things I was leveling at him were not complimentary. But do I think he's taken full responsibility for out of control that production was and how terrifying it was? No, absolutely not. Sarah, in your book, you describe a serious concussion that you suffered as an adult and a healthcare journey that lasted years as you tried to get better. How are you feeling now? I'm great. I mean, it's gone. I don't have any concussion symptoms anymore. And this was a concussion that dragged on for three and a half years. And I, you know, I had this really amazing treatment at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I do feel 100% now. But more than that, I feel like I've been given this gift of this paradigm shift of running towards the things that aggravate your symptoms, which I've just sort of taken with me into every aspect of my life. You wrote in the book that you worried at one point that because you had various maladies throughout your life. And here's the quote. You said, they were starting to get on people's nerves and make them (laughs) suspicious. That's really interesting. Why do you think people began to have that feeling? I don't know. But I mean, I think it's, you know, it it can start to sort of seem like an identity at some point to people, right? Like if you have enough things, like I had scoliosis when I was a kid, which I guess isn't totally invisible. Like I was clearly crooked, but It's not like having an open bleeding wound. It's not like having cancer. It's serious, but not terminal. And then I had endometriosis. I had a very high risk first pregnancy. I had a concussion. Like a lot of these things are invisible. And I think when enough of them are piled on top of each other, you can start to seem a little crazy. Has your understanding of anything that happened early in your life fundamentally changed through the process of writing this book? 
I think so for, for all of them, what the story feels like and the meaning of these stories has really changed through the process of running towards them and going back into the past and saying like, I'm just going to wrestle with these things. Like it's not going to be comfortable, but these difficult pivotal events from our past have a way of coming and finding us and making us wrestle with them if we don't start the process. So I feel like that's the project of this book. And that's in a way it's battle cry is let's go back. Let's look at the things we're avoiding. Let's unpack them. Let's have a conversation with them because otherwise they just have far too much power. Do you feel more powerful now that you've gone through that process? I do. I feel a million times stronger actually. And that's not to say that I think these stories are done with me or that I'm done with them. Like I I think this thing is an ever evolving process and I'm sure there's lots of other stories that, you know, I haven't run towards and that are going to either come find me or I'm going to go find them. But I do, I feel really emboldened to kind of go into the things that cause me discomfort and to to have these difficult conversations with myself. And I think that inevitably makes one feel stronger. That's Sarah Pauly. Her new book is Run Towards the Danger. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Isaac Butler just wrote this big book called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And it's about the techniques employed by a lot of big-time famous actors today. But in this interview, NPR's Scott Simon brings a healthy amount of skepticism to the whole school of thought. Like, why can't they just, you know, read their lines and go home like everyone else? Butler's answer is basically, you can do that and still practice the method, you know? It's not an excuse to be a jerk. Hey, Stella! Brando, Kazan, the film of Tennessee Williams' streetcar named Desire 1951, The Method. A lot of luminous names were students of The Method in acting with Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler in the actor's studio, Brando, Al Pacino, Ellen Burstein, Diane Keaton, Robert Duvall, Marilyn Monroe, Jane Fonda, to name just a few. What is The Method? What impact has it had on the way we see so many of the works that move us. Isaac Butler's new book is The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And Isaac Butler, the critic, director, former actor and host of Slate's Working Podcast, joins us from Why Am I Not Surprised? It's Brooklyn. Thanks so much for being with us, Isaac. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Scott. We think of The Method as, as actors going inside, using their own memories to depict emotions of the characters they play. But help us understand... The whole origin story here that goes back to, of course, Stanislavski and the Moscow Art Theater. Uh, yeah. So, you know, prior to Stanislavski and the Moscow Art Theater, um, 
good acting usually did not involve going deep inside yourself. It was about learning a highly conventionalized uh, series of gestures, facial expressions, intonations, ways of performing a part. And uh, over the course of his career, uh, Konstantin Stanislavski, who is an actor himself as well as a director and teacher and theorist, uh, really transformed our ideas of what, what good acting was into something that involved the truth, uh, portraying the truth in your character and going within yourself to find that truth. The phrase is... uh... Perishivani? Perishivanya. Yes, that is a, a Russian word that roughly means, of course, there's no exact translation, but it means experiencing or re-experiencing. It is not the moment where the actor fully becomes the character. Stanislavski believed both that that wasn't really possible and that was probably a sign of mental illness if you did it, but it is sort of the moment where the actor and the character meet. They merge into this sort of joint entity and the actor begins to really enter imaginatively into the world of the character and experience the things the character is experiencing. Did the method uh, come to America when the Russian Revolution occurred and people came for them? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the Russian Revolution certainly helped. Uh, One of Stanislavski's uh, disciples, I suppose, was a man named Richard Boleslavsky, who had served as an officer in World War I and was a white, which is to mean an an anti-communist after the fall of the Tsar. Moscow became an increasingly uncomfortable place for him to be, and so he fled the country, and he eventually wound up in the United States in New York City. And he happened to be in New York City at the exact moment that the Moscow Art Theater went on tour of the United States. And it just so happened that they needed someone to explain these ideas to the American people. And Richard Boleslavsky turned out to be that person. Give us one of the exercises that are often part of the method. Maybe I can give you one of the most controversial ones, right? Uh, and that's the affective memory exercise. And and the way this works is that you would attempt to essentially trigger yourself. You're going to uh, recall a memory from your past that has a strong emotion attached to it to have that emotion on demand. And the way you recall that memory is to remember the sensory details of it. So you might remember, you know, the loss of a loved one in a hospital room, you know, so, so you might recall the sound, the, the beeping sound that the heart monitor made or that kind of smell that hospital rooms have that antiseptic smell. And you would use these sensory details until suddenly you began feeling the things that you felt then. And if you can do that reliably and learn to control it, you can then use those emotions to give a sense of reality to your performances. Marlon Brando, great actor. Um, Great big pain in the butt for a lot of his (laughs) co-stars, wasn't it? A mercurial trickster would I think be the most flattering way to uh, describe him, right? Well, you you write so beautifully of the defining differences he had in Streetcar Named Desire with his uh, his co-star in the stage version, Jessica Tandy. Yes, Jessica Tandy called him a psychopathic bastard. Uh, oh, Jessica that's T- just showbiz, but go ahead, yeah. <laughs> you know, Jessica Tandy was a British-trained uh, actress. She had worked with John Gielgud. She had worked with Laurence Olivier. She was a consummate professional who believed, you know, you did your part, you figured out how you were going to do it, you did it very precisely, and you did it the same every night. That was part of 
of what you owed your cast members. Actually, most actors today would kind of agree with that, but um, that's just not how Brando was ever going to work. You know, um, Brando's whole thing was that he was living in the moment and he was going to do exactly what came to him in that moment. And you had to just adjust to that. And his cast members had a lot of trouble with it. I've got to raise something with you. I have interviewed many accomplished, big-name British actors over the years mm. who think the method is, uh, I don't know how to say it politely, hooey. <laughs> yeah. Dame Glenda Jackson. We interviewed her. She said, no, you say the words so people can understand them. That's the bloody job. And I've interviewed directors who notably hire British actors mm -hmm. to play American roles and they say it's because they come to the set, know their lines, and don't go into psychotherapy uh, to play the car salesman. Yeah, I completely understand it, frankly. I mean, I think part of the complexity of this story is that it's responsible for, you know, amazingly brilliant performances and really terrible behavior. You know, it, both of those things kind of flow out of this. There are lots of people who we don't think of necessarily as method actors who you also don't hear a, a lot of complaints about. You know, I would put Ellen Burstyn up against Glenda Jackson any day, for example. Ellen Burstyn is, you know, one of the great champions of the method, studied at the actor studio, has run the actor studio after Lee Strasberg's death. If any of those teachers were still alive today, they they would say to you, well, of course you have to show up on set and know your lines and not need psychotherapy and take care of yourself and not abuse your cast members. You shouldn't use this stuff as an excuse to do that. And I believe that. So to return to your point about British actors, British actors today stylistically actually owe a great deal to the post-method um, American actors. The, you know, a British actor on camera today is, is a lot more similar to Dustin Hoffman in the 70s than they are to Laurence Olivier in the 40s. Isaac Butler's book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Thank you for going deep inside yourself on this interview. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm going to go recover now. <laughs> That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Barry Gordimer, David West, Jan Johnson, Michael Radcliffe, Melissa Gray, Samantha Balaban, Ravenna Koenig, Connor Donovan, Ayen Bior, Justine Kennan, Elena Burnett, Courtney Dorning, Daniel Hensel, and Matthew Shurman. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. 
Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.